You can't be a tough cop on the beat if you don't investigate crime. Coming up on Citizens Insight. Welcome to Citizens Insight, the Citizens Party's interview series on matters of national and international importance. And my guest today to discuss this topic is the economist, John Adams. Welcome, John. Hi, Robbie. How are you going? Yeah, good. Now, John is a regular um, friend of the show, of the Citizens Insight. And John's a return guest of the Citizens Insight show um, because the uh, maybe we should confess, John, our relationship. John and I talk every morning, very early. John discovered early on in our relationship that I get up early. So we have 6 a.m. calls most mornings of the week to plot the uh, takedown of financial crime and political corruption and all those things that we work together on, which has been um, a lot of fun. Um, but let's just remind people who you are, John, because I think with your... Well, I do want people to remember your background because what you're, what you're about to cover in this show uh, is informed by a lot of actually very important experiences that you've had to bring into this position. So um, you're an economist who was also a an advisor to the Liberal Party when they were in opposition. But one thing I credit you for is then you're prepared to break off from that and go off as an independent um, commentator um, and activist. And you've, you and I got together and you've, you've actually, um, uh, the Citizens Party's collaborated with you on policies, policy fights on things like bail-in and the cash ban. Um, just quickly comment on that experience, if you will, um, and what you know, what it might have informed you going into what you're about to talk about. Sure, sure, yeah. So, so in terms of my background, yes, yeah, so obviously a professional economist, uh, been a, a Commonwealth public servant, public servant in New South Wales. Uh, I did work for, uh, I was the economic advisor to Senator Senadinis about a decade ago uh, in 2012-13. Um, uh, I've worked at Ernst Young as a management consultant, um, and, and and during. <clears throat> excuse me, that experience, I was largely consulting to government. So I've got a deep expertise in public policy uh, and obviously economics as well. Got very frustrated with the state of the economy. And that's when I started writing a number of provocative articles for the Daily Telegraph in 2016. Um, and uh, obviously wrote a, a whole host of articles for news.com as well in 2017, 2018. And I think that's when you came across some of my material. Yeah, we, uh, we started was, quoting we started quoting you on the impending economic Armageddon before we even met you. Indeed, indeed, and uh, and and yeah. So so, so I, I mean I mean if I could just focus on that point for a second, one of the so I had a six scenario model back in 2018 about Armageddon, and one of them was stagflation, which is uh, you know slow economic growth, wages growth, and surging prices uh, from from excessive money printing, and that was before COVID, and COVID was the biggest stimulus package in Australian history. And now we've got a huge inflation problem. And uh, according to Martin North's uh, data on mortgage and rental stress, it, you know, stress is, has gone through the roof at a time where um, the RBA is raising interest rates and a lot of households across the country are financially um, feeling it quite significantly. And so, you know, those types of uh, predictions and warnings uh, four years ago have sort of come to be. And for those that have listened to the message that I have, I, I think they've uh, 
done themselves reasonably well, but there's a whole host of uh, uh, people out there who have um, uh, not fared so well. And uh, I mean, there's been some articles, for example, in the pandemic, about 400,000 relationships, both de facto and marriages, dissolved as a result of uh, uh, you know the the turmoil of the pandemic and the, and how that pandemic was managed. And so I think a lot of those relationships that broke down, uh, money and financial matters had a lot to do with it. Yeah. So, um, so so all of those are, are very very important aspects. And uh, uh, yeah, so uh, obviously we've been working together looking at uh, areas where we agree on. Obviously, there's a lot of areas where we don't agree on in terms of me and the Citizens Party. But uh, but yeah, we've had a very fruitful relationship over the last, uh, I think, four or five years as we've been working together. Uh, obviously, our crown achievement is the um, stopping the passage of the $10,000 cash transaction banned by the Morrison government and the federal parliament. And uh, we, we gave uh, reform of uh, bail-in a crack and we got an inquiry up in 2020, but uh, uh, but you know, that's the still a work in progress. Indeed, yes. Yeah. So, so the part the Senate wasn't inclined to accept our s small amendment to the Banking Act, um, and so that was a very big disappointment. Um, I will I will I will interject here, John, because you and I have talked about this in the last week. Lot, lots of claims go around about bail-in at certain times. Um, I would I'd be confident enough to say if you don't hear the Citizens Party or John Adams talking about it there's probably nothing to those claims because we're over this bailing question like a rash. Um, and there's a, just a, there's a certain industry that's based on um, alarmism. So we, um, you know, people go, oh, bailing's about to happen. We'll be on top of it if it absolutely is about to happen. But um, yeah, we, we notice some of these people trying to ride on our coattails, don't we? Hundred percent, hundred percent, and uh, I mean, well, look, I mean, I don't know if you want to mention a particular individual that we both have uh, significant concerns about, or whether we should leave that for another time. Uh, we'll leave, we'll leave that for another time. Um, sure. uh, what, my comment on what you just just recapping on your your CV here, and what I've come to appreciate you is about you is you know how government works, and this is very important because we're in a we're in a tumultuous period where people want to know how government works, but they don't. And, and they're susceptible to all sorts of claims that can get made, um, we find if we focus on actually knowing how government works and then working to change government policy, um, that's when you can have success. And that's, that was the basis of the success on the cash ban. And we need to have that again on this subject. So we better, we better move on to it. You're often trying new things. Um, but in the last year or so, John, you've tried something completely different. Now, I know you can't talk about it um, in detail, but what can you tell us about your project that's led you to this discussion? Um, so, so what happened last year, Robbie, was that two individuals approached me last year in 2021 and put forward a conspiracy theory um, that involved a financial aspect. Um, and the claim was that this conspiracy theory had been happening in this country for at least a decade, potentially two decades, and that um, there was significant corruption and criminality that was happening. And so when I was first told this, just like you and I discuss on the phone every morning about all sorts of conspiracy theories that are out there, a lot of them are false. Um, and so initially I had very, I was very skeptical about what I was being told, but then I thought um, there could be something to it because it, was, it, you know, it wasn't just a broad brush type of conspiracy, it was quite specific. So I thought to myself, well, 
Um, given that uh, no one's likely to do anything about it, how would I um, try to uncover what the truth is? And uh, I think last week I did a video with Martin North uh, uh, about uh, you know the package the, the package that will shock Australia. And really, I always did what I described in that um, video is that I went on the journey of trying to um, become an investigator, um, sell finance about fifty thousand um, uh, dollars, and basically trying to uncover what is the real state of affairs in this particular conspiracy, um, and, and 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 then obviously trying to understand well. If you if you can uncover what you if you can uncover something, what do you do with it? And so the initial legal advice was to go to ASIC, um, and uh, that's what I did in April of this year. Um, uh, and we called for an investigation, uh, and our submission was uh, 608 pages, which included 103 exhibits of evidence. And uh, after two and a half months of assessment, uh, ASIC uh, confirmed to me in writing that an investigation has commenced, uh, and this is an investigation under Section 13 of the ASIC Act, and now it's really up to ASIC and their investigative team with their legal powers to uncover what the truth is um, and, you know, whether whether people need to be brought to justice. But and this so, is, um, sorry, this, this is why you also got involved in the campaign that we were involved in last year for an inquiry into the collapse of the Sterling First scheme in Western Australia, which which was largely focused on ASIC, um, what were you looking for? This was like due diligence for you, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. The, th the, th the thing is, is that I mean, ASIC has had a tumultuous record in history, particularly in the last decade. So there's been numerous reviews. The 2014 Senate Economic References Committee uh, inquiry into ASIC's performance, the Royal Commission. And then obviously we had the uh, the issue with Sterling, which uh, your party, uh, I'll give you credit for, we're, we're, we're trying to defend these uh, innocent victims. But also you had uh, Senator Pratt uh, for, for Labor and others um, in the parliament saying that needs something needs to be done about Sterling and numerous uh, shows had been done by the 730 report. And so Senator Pratt basically uh, got on the horse and said, okay, let's, let's get an inquiry up and then when the um, inquiry was was uh, when submissions were being called in the inquiry, um, uh, and, and your party was very active in that campaign, uh, I took that opportunity to uh, understand. Uh, well, not only just to understand, but to also assist. So I was assisting both you behind the scenes, Senator Pratt, yeah. Senator Roberts, uh, other people as well, Senator Scar, and and what I was really trying to get. Uh, get out of that process was obviously one uh, hold ASIC to account, but two to really understand um, ASIC's thinking about Sterling um, and, and and what lessons could I draw for for the project that I was working on, because uh, as I've revealed in a recent show with uh, Martin North, uh, according to ASIC's own um, uh, 2021 annual report, the chances of an investigation being commenced from a report of alleged misconduct is 0.74%. So it is very hard to get ASIC to investigate something. And so uh, the threshold is very high. Um, and, and, and so I wanted to understand what that threshold looks like um, and what, what advantages could I obtain from the Sterling inquiry that I could use so that when I went to ASIC um, with my report of alleged misconduct that it had the, the best chance of success. And, and so there was a number of things that I took from that. 
And obviously, one of the alarming things about the Sterling Inquiry was that ASIC took 14 months um, from the time that they had received a, uh, a phone call and a report from uh, the Western Australian Demers Department. Um, um, and, and, and so uh, that, to a lot of people, was, was too long for them to start investigating um, potential criminality in, in the Sterling issue. And did, that so, feel, did that fill you with confidence in ASIC? No, no, of course not. Of course not. So, 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 so the thing is that I wanted to understand why did it take 14 months um, and, 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 you know, how do I ensure that, that, that we can get ASIC interested in our case um, and we can get the outcome? And, and I have to say, Robbie, the one, the one thing that uh, was, the, was the big sort of learning for me is ASIC's own words when, Senate, when Chairman Longo told the Senate that we, you know, ASIC can only act on the information and the evidence that they have at a particular point in time. And so um, what happened in the, what I took from the Sterling experience was that um, uh, so, so they had a they had a phone call from the WA department um, and that phone call was was sort of piecemeal information and, and, and proper um, uh, admissible evidence hadn't been established um, that that would give ASIC the alarm bell to trigger to in terms of to to trigger an investigation so so what i so the big lesson i learned from was that if i was going to uh go to asic um and i did obviously so the sterling inquiry started in november and i went to asic in uh, april of this year so i needed to make sure that i i gave asic all the information up front and the evidence was as as comprehensive as it could be and our complaint, our report of misconduct, which was you know 53 pages uh, signed by my myself and my barrister, it was thoroughly comprehensive. Tried to cover all aspects that ASIC needed to know, so that we can, uh, so that ASIC did not have the excuse to say, well, we weren't told of this particular aspect at this particular time. So, so that that so that that's the big lesson I've learned is that to get ASIC interested. You've got to give them as you've got to tell them everything at, at the earliest possible time, so that they can't say we didn't know. Um, and, and that's part that's part of their defence in the case of Sterling was that they knew some things in March of 2017, but it wasn't until uh, uh, sort of uh, April or May of 2018 that they had a, a full set of knowledge that was giving them that would give them confidence to commence an official, an official investigation. I, sh I should emphasize here that what you're talking about is is um, trying to figure out how to get ASIC to work um, as it is. And one of the things that we need to get onto is is how do we learn from these, these experiences to get ASIC to work as it should be. Um, you were able to make it work and we'll talk about that more in a minute, but um, we've got to we've got to learn what do we have to do to improve ASIC so it works as it should do to actually um, benefit the community? And there's there's three there's an acronym that um, is the kiss of death <laughs> from ASIC, um, which which we first noticed when um, Senator Louise Pratt uh, succeeded in getting an order for the production of documents into the Sterling case, and you see from 2015 onwards this repeat. Um, acknowledgement from ASIC, oh yeah, we, we got this complaint, we got this complaint, we got this complaint, and each time the complaint was marked NFA, no further action. And right. your, your job 
um, for your case was to figure out how do I submit a, a, a complaint that doesn't get the kiss of death of NFA. That's so, right. the, so for me, John, um, as you were, because John's briefing me to, to the degree he can as he's going through this investigation for the last year, and what I was very interested in was less the details of the investigation, but I'm sure that's important, except we're not going to tease the viewers by pretending we're going to talk about that here, but more the, the process. How does the process work? And you started looking at ASIC's own reports of its performance and you started highlighting these, what I think are abominable stats. So let's just go through some of the stats. I'll just read out the list you have from the executive summary of your report. John's written a report for Parliament on this, which you can comment on in a minute, but I wanna go through the stats first, John. Um, and you can comment as we go. So this, this covers the period of fiscal year 11, 12 to 2021. So it's roughly a decade. Um, uh, the rate of reports of alleged misconduct from the Australian public that result in no further action, NFA, increased in that decade from 33% to 65%. Now, how bad is that? Yeah, yeah. The thing is, is that yes. So, so in order to just sort of brief the audience, Robbie, is is that so separate to my report to ASIC about the case I was investigating, because I've gone through the experience and and um and because I I can see quite a few deficiencies both in the law but also in terms of ASIC's operational uh, performance and standards. Um, what I've decided to do is to write my own independent report. Uh, for Parliament, calling for a parliamentary inquiry, and and, and the reality is, Robbie, is is that um, uh, I don't have any sour grapes with ASIC per se because I got what I wanted. I want an investigation. We've yeah. got the investigation, and we'll see what the investigation uh, uh, in in terms of what it what it delivers. But, but you but put your public policy hat on, and what I know is is that the the thing that kept on going through my mind was is that can the mum and dad investor at home, the people that lose their life savings in the managed investment scheme, people like uh, the victims of Sterling, etc. Can they replicate the the effort and the comprehensiveness that it, that it took me? And so it took me, you know, $50,000, nine months uh, of putting a whole team together, um, me working full time. Um, and it was, you know, it was a very uh, arduous ordeal to get the evidence necessary to to commit to get ASIC to commence an investigation, and they did it after two and a half months, as opposed to fourteen months in the case of Sterling. Mm. But uh, what I what I came to the conclusion was that um, the 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 chances of the mum and dad investor uh, supporters of the citizen party, etc., to replicate what I did, um, it, it's not going to happen. And and so the question for policymakers is. Um, what is what is the expectation of Parliament? What is the expectation of the public to get ASIC to commence an investigation? Because I think there's a huge gap between yep. what ASIC does um, and what, how ASIC thinks versus what Parliament and the public think. And so this is why I think a public inquiry would be necessary so that those differing views can be canvassed and, and, and we can see if we can bridge those uh, uh, differing views to some sort of consensus as to um, how do we make the process easier and more uh, streamlined so that uh, because because the reality is, is that what ASIC wants is they want quality reports of alleged misconduct um, and, and, and the problem is is that ASIC don't tell the public what is a quality report, um, how much evidence is required, what is the nature of that evidence and, and because 
there is such a mismatch of expectations and understanding of how to work pr productively with ASIC. That's why you're seeing these in terms of the, in terms of those types of statistics. But obviously, the other concerning thing that I had was that not only did you have um, a, a you know reports from the public uh, being 65% in 2021, that that over the decade it seems that the performance of ASIC is actually getting worse. Um, and, and, and I can't find any specific evidence that justifies why those trends are happening. And so there's a whole host of trends, whether it's around uh, NFA, whether it's around the commencement of investigations, um, you know, whether it's uh, reports of alleged misconduct from the public or these breach reports or liquidated reports. Um, I mean, we, we've had multiple reviews into ASIC. ASIC's got more staff, ASIC's got more resources. Uh, the uh, former Treasurer Frydenberg gave uh, ASIC $400 million over four years uh, starting uh, in early 2019 after the conclusion of the Royal Commission so that they could actually be more effective. And so far, uh, their numbers don't look particularly good. Now, it could well be that uh, in the next uh, month or so, we'll see the next annual report and the numbers could have a, an improvement in those numbers. So we'll, we'll obviously have to see what the numbers kind of look, look like is, is that, but um, my biggest concern is, is that if we don't um, get parliament interested to uh, finally get on top of these issues with ASIC, we're going to have another sterling. We're going to have another situation sure. where investors go to ASIC. And obviously it's not just sterling. This story with the Wolf of Woi Woi, it is, it is alarming to, to say the least. You've got a former chief financial officer on national television saying, I had the evidence, I could have given the government anything they wanted. I blew the whistle. This is the what he said, quote, I blew the whistle. I went through the proper channels, not an email, not a phone call. That cannot happen in this country. That, that, that experience is just completely unacceptable. And, um, uh, and, and so, uh, dare I say, even in terms of management of whistleblowers, when we talk about NFA, the average NFA rate for whistleblower disclosures is 91%. So if, 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 91, if, you, if you're a whistleblower and you're going to take the risk of your career, your financial position, your, your physical security, all sorts of the, potentially your marriage or your relationship, you're going to take all that risk and the chances of ASIC doing something with your disclosure is 9%. Um, uh, and on top of that, you may have to pay money to get a lawyer or a barrister to yeah. actually assist you in the legal process. What's the what's the incentive to be whistleblower in this country? I mean, I mean these numbers are highly alarming. And 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 again, I think uh, some of the officials that in in ASIC are living in an ivory tower, um, and they just need to get a reality check that that these numbers are just completely unacceptable. Well, just just indulge me for a second. I want to run through the the the, the headline ones you've got here. So the, <clears throat> the complaints from the public that result in NFA went from 33% to 65% over the decade. The rate of breach reports, now this is, this is the self-reporting by corporations, isn't it, breach reports? So, so, the, so the breach reports are self-reporting of, of contraventions either by license holders, so if you're a holder of a financial, Australian yeah. financial services license, or if you're an auditor. So they increased from 50 that the, 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 the rate that it resulted in no further action increased from 50% to 89%, um, nearly, nearly uh, 90. The average annual ratio of investigations to reports of alleged misconduct was only 1.27%. 
the ratio of investigations to reports of alleged misconduct peaked in fiscal year 14-15 and then fell to a low of only 0.74% in fiscal year 2021. So when you saw that figure, I remember you were saying to me, you've got to craft your complaint to get into that 1% or less than 1% that, That's that, right. that actually gets investigated. Uh, as you said, on average, 91% of whistleblower disclosures result in no further dis um, uh, action. And then meanwhile, the level of staff within the ASIC Enforcement Office grew by 52% from 371 um, in 1819 to 563 in fiscal year 2021, while the investigation to reports of alleged misconduct ratio fell to a lower 0.75%. And finally, ASIC's website, including other digital tools and services, does not provide stakeholders, including members of the Australian public, with an easy-to-follow experience when submitting reports of alleged misconduct. So they're your, they're your main um, findings. And mm. so the, the first one is, um, like my first specific question there, in 2014, as we discussed, and it's kind of notorious now, the, the then chairman of ASIC described Australia as a paradise for white-collar criminals. Do you connect the two, that kind of performance, and Australia being a paradise for white-collar criminals? What, what, well, the thing is, is that, I mean, uh, well, the interesting thing with, with the, the former chairman of Medcraft is, is that he actually said that in an interview with uh, Adolph Ferguson, if, I, if, if my memory serves me correctly. And what he was actually really attacking was not that he was actually criticising his own agency. He was actually criticising the judges. He was saying that the sentencing for white-collar crime is way too lenient in this country and that's why we have a paradise and that there's no um, um uh, you don't have a big enough stick to to warn white collar criminals not to engage in that sort of conduct and and so you have to say robbie if we're going to be completely honest if you look at madoff madoff got 150 years in jail for basically stealing 65 billion dollars um and, and destroying hundreds of organizations and, and families right across america but also right across the world and and and, and so there is a different standard when it comes to sentencing for white collar crime in other jurisdictions, particularly in the United States compared to Australia. So, the, the, I mean, yes, so I think there needs to be a discussion in the legal fraternity about the seriousness of, of financial crime um, and, and, the, and the impact that financial crime has on families um, and, in, and in terms of organisations and how uh, there needs to be tougher penalties if you actually engage in that conduct but obviously um what 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 my report is really trying to get at is is that before you can prosecute financial criminals you have to be able to investigate you've got to have a willingness to yeah. investigate cases and investigate to see whether the law has been contravened um and and, and when you have a regulator um like ASIC that has numbers in its annual report suggesting that they have a lower willingness um, um, as time goes on to investigate. Well, I mean, again, so maybe ASIC has uh, a, a, an explanation for that, but, but, but what I've tried to do is say, well, you know, these are the numbers from the annual report and we tried to document 
where I got those numbers from, which annual reports, which number pages, etc. And so if we can, if we all agree that the numbers are the numbers, well, um, th th there has to be a discussion between Parliament and ASIC as to, mm. well, why are these things happening? What is the expectations of Parliament? Because one, one of the uh, key points that Justice Hayne made in the Royal Commission was that, um, uh, you know, no one has a choice about uh, about following the law. We all must follow the law. Parliament passes the law, um, and, and Parliament expects um, ASIC to enforce it. And, and so, when you have a lower appetite to enforce the law or to investigate breaches of law, that should absolutely be a high concern for Parliament. Um, and, and and kind of like I said before. With this report that we're in, in, in the sort of uh, final stages of concluding, even if uh, the parliament says to me, well, we're not going to have an inquiry, well, the reality is, is that these issues are going to continue to fester and it's going to impact other people in the community, even though I got my outcome. Um, what I'm trying to do here is actually try to help other people in the community so that they, they don't have to, so that they can actually get some justice, they can get some success um and, and it doesn't have to be so arduous i mean i mean the hardest the hardest thing about uh this type of process is uh there's an expectation by the public that asic asic staff can join the dots the yeah. reality is, is that they can't join the dots they need the public to put a good piece of the puzzle together um so that they can actually see what's going on um, but to be able to do that um in a comprehensive legal way uh, people in the public need to put put the evidence together, um, and yet a, a good chunk of those NFAs in, in terms of uh, uh, reports of alleged misconduct from the public is because of insufficient evidence. Well, ASIC doesn't say what evidence they require. You know, to what standard, to what quality? Um, do they want documents? Do they want witnesses? Do they want whistleblowers? I mean, so uh, I mean, we're trying to put it all together, but also, as I said, with the Martin North, we did uh, a method of triangulation. We we looked at uh, the, the the alleged conspiracy that I was investigating through five or six different lenses and techniques to see there's you know I mean can we I mean like uh, do those different techniques point to a uh, conspiracy that it all lines up or or, or do do these different techniques tell us a different story and 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 the fortunate thing for us is that it all sort of pointed in the same direction so mm -hmm. when we said to ASIC we're alleging a huge scheme. Um, that's been happening for a decade, which which could have a huge uh, impact both in terms of the quantum of, of money, but also the quantum of uh, potential victims. Uh, we basically said, well, we're, we're making these uh, serious allegations and assertions based on multiple sources and all their sources line up in a particular direction. And that should give us the confidence that we're not just pulling something out of a hat. We're really, we're, we think we really have something real here. But what you're describing, John, becomes a bit of a catch-22 because you say ASIC needs um, more evidence before it can investigate. But isn't, <laughs> isn't the purpose of the investigation to collect the evidence that ASIC knows it needs? And so you essentially did an investigation for them. I think we can... Um, I saw the package, what you've called the package, um, this great big thick folder that I, I'm one of the people who can bear witness that this is a real package that you've, that you've submitted to ASIC. Mm -hmm. But you've done the investigation for them. And as you've said, mum and pa, mums and mums and dads who are ASIC victims, they cannot hope to match what you did. It can't be this hard. So 
is the failing of ASIC and unwillingness to investigate so, or an internal issue for ASIC or um, how much do you think with your experience in government and public policy is a political question of the, the parliament and the government tolerating ASIC being this dysfunctional? Um, yeah, so, so what I would say, Robbie, is that parliament needs to assert its authority over ASIC. So um, the, uh, yeah, so, so I, mean, I mean, parliament is the one that is ultimately account, like the authority uh, in, in, in terms of how ASIC operates, even though ASIC is an independent commission and it doesn't take direct instructions from, from the executive branch of the government. So, for example, a Department of State will take direct instructions from the minister, whereas whereas ASIC is independent of the minister, which is yeah. the treasurer or the assistant treasurer. And, and so even though it is independent, it is still serving a public role. Um, and parliament and the public need to have confidence that that public role is being fulfilled. So, so there's definitely an issue um, in terms of ASIC's performance, but 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 yeah, but having gone through the exercise, Robbie, it's just it, it's just very. There's so many questions. If you if you go through ASIC's own website and you try to understand how to uh, put together an effective report of alleged misconduct, it is just so tricky to understand um, uh, how to navigate this. And let, let me give you one practical example. For example, when it comes to whistleblowers. So, 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 so basically, ASIC says it is not up to them to determine who is and who is not a whistleblower. It is up to the court. So when, you, when, when a whistleblower goes to ASIC and says, I'm a whistleblower, I'm an eligible whistleblower under 1317 AAA of the Corporations Act, well, um, the, the whistleblower actually has no confidence uh, or has no certainty as to whether ASIC will accept their assertion that they are a whistleblower or not, because ASIC says we, we don't, we, it's not up to us to, to, to determine. So when you go make a disclosure, well, do you actually have whistleblower protections or not? I mean, like all of that is just so up in the air. But but also in terms of, uh, and again, you know, look, I've harped on this about three or four times in this interview, Robbie, is, is that uh, about the evidence. I mean, they don't tell, I mean, what I think would make it a lot easier, for example, is, if ASIC did a number of online videos and they actually, you know, had people say, okay, this is what we're looking for. This is all, this is what an effective report of alleged misconduct looks like. This is the type of evidence that we we would hope you could put together for us. Um, um, and if you want us to give us the best chance to investigate, um, this is the threshold. So uh, I think there's a definite communication problem. Um, for some reason, ASIC doesn't want to um, be fully transparent with what they require. Um, and, and because it's such a black box, kind of like what I said with Martin last week, the typical type of report of alleged misconduct could be Robbie Barwick sending an email to ASIC saying, John Adams is a crook, he ripped me off, I've lost money, go investigate John Adams. So, I, I mean, now, those types of complaints will be NFA because they'll say, well, just because Robbie says that John Adams ripped him off, that, that's not enough for us. So I mean, we can't investigate everything. So if, if Robbie uh, wants uh, ASIC to investigate John Adams, Robbie's got to tell us a lot more. Yeah. They've got to, Robbie's got to provide some statements, um, some some documents that we've got to actually, uh, but, but, but also the other hard thing to, to say is that, Robbie, if you, for example, went to ASIC and said, John Adams ripped you off, you would expect ASIC to be able to understand 
which laws were broken. Well, we, we didn't make that assumption. We actually were very specific in our report to ASIC and we said, these are the laws that are broken. These are the facts. These are our legal assumptions. And this is how in detail the law has been broken. So we went to that level of effort because we didn't leave anything to chance. And yet, uh, I mean, the other, the other impossible thing for mum and dad investors is it's not just about getting the evidence together. It's, it's actually understanding which laws were broken because some of these laws are very um, dense, very yeah. opaque. I mean, the Corporations Act is, is, is more than maybe a thousand to two thousand pages. So for, for, a, for an untrained retail, unsophisticated investor to navigate the Corporations Act or the ASIC Act and say to ASIC, these specific laws have been broken um, without the right expertise, um, it's not going to happen. And because the retail investor can't articulate that, I mean, the ASIC officer says, well, um, I've, I've got an email here from Robbie Barwick. I don't know how to apply this to the law. I don't understand what, uh, I, don't, I don't have enough information from Robbie to, uh, that, that would give me confidence that Robbie's actually telling me something legitimate. So, so again, so, so there's a huge communication problem um, and, and there has to be a more easier way. I mean, one of the things that I think would be a, a useful thing, for example, is ASIC should, should establish a hotline and say, you cannot, we won't accept a report of alleged misconduct until you call the hotline. And the hotline could easily be is um, where someone says, okay, you know, look, someone could ask a bunch of questions. What do I need to provide to ASIC? How do you want it? Uh, uh, you know, what's the best format, et cetera. And that hotline can actually coach potential victims or potential reporters of alleged misconduct about how to make the most effective report so that you can actually uh, not waste ASIC's time, and but you actually put your best foot, you are able to put your best foot forward. So, so this I think there's a big opportunity for reform um, in terms of uh, how ASIC does these things. But but until that reform happens, um, yeah, you're going to have uh, you're going to have more victims of financial crime, whether it's Sterling or Trio or the Wolf of Wall Street, etc. And they're just going to go, and, and you're going to see these uh, more and more innocent Australians on national TV saying. I wrote to ASIC, I yeah. heard nothing back, I phoned ASIC, nothing happened. Uh, the whistleblower went to ASIC, uh, not a phone call, not an email, et cetera. And, 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 and that, I just think, is just an unacceptable state of affairs. So can I just point out for the viewer, though, you've done one investigation on one case. That's right. And submitted to ASIC. And you're yeah. full of these ideas about how to improve ASIC's performance. ASIC, however, is run, aside from the chairman, is run by people who've been there for decades, who were there in the whole period leading up to the Royal Commission where ASIC was caned for its performance at the Royal Commission. It got the worst hiding of any of the regulators. Um, and there did seem to be a bit of a, an effort after that, which, is, which has been derailed in my opinion. But everybody knows at ASIC, or everybody at ASIC should be embarrassed by these figures. They should, they should know how appalling their performance should be. Things like, um, uh, ASIC is notorious for having these, these databases that operate in silos that don't communicate with each other. So, you, you know, one of the Sterling victims told me, um, Beryl Taylor, when I interviewed her, she called up ASIC and said, I'm, I'm interested in this, in this um, uh, company. Um, is there any red flags? And she was told no. But ASIC should have a database where you can type in all the information and find out, hang on, yeah, there are some red flags here that people should know about. But... When the level of dysfunction, John, is, is, in my view, intentional because 
They've had so many complaints over so many years and they haven't improved their performance. You've, done, you've had one experience with ASIC and you're full of all these ideas from a public policy perspective of how to improve the, the performance. And that's the difference between goodwill and intention for what's the best for, for the country versus this bureaucratic and worse form of functioning. And what, and what I mean by worse is, is, ASIC, is ASIC's dysfunction self-serving or as we suspect and have long alleged, does it actually serve the big financial institutions who want to keep ASIC um, weak and dysfunctional because that, that, that serves their interests, right? And it ends up leaving all these victims in their wake. And by, by victims, remember, since 2008, there are 200,000 Australians have lost $40 billion in managed investment schemes in this country just since 2008. Right? They're the ones that the Royal Commission has said should be compensated under a scheme, compensation scheme of last resort. So this is, this, I just want people to see this contrast. You, one, one experience with ASIC, you put your heart and soul into it, now you're full of all these ideas. So the conclusion is, um, uh, at a minimum, you can't, you can't call these shots, you can't say this is what must happen, but what we can say confidently, based on everything you've gone through and everything we've gone through with Sterling First, etc., is there must be an inquiry into this performance and why, right? Well, well the th look, could I say, Robbie, is I think it needs to be more than an inquiry. So, so I'm calling for an inquiry, but 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 again, um, there has to be change. Uh, and, 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 and so from what I can see, I don't think there's been sufficient change since the 2014 inquiry or the Royal Commission or Sterling. Um, and, and the question for Parliament, because it's ultimately up to Parliament to yep. determine what they want out of ASIC is, why is there not sufficient change and what's required to drive that change? So whether it is, now, um, ASIC always has the excuse of resourcing. So uh, to be honest, I've, you know, I, I've, I met with ASIC uh, the last few weeks where I got to have a discussion about some of these issues with them. And, and so I said to them, you know, if you don't have enough money, you should be honest to Parliament saying this is this is the the funding envelope we need to do a proper job. So if it, if it's the issue of money, if it's the, if the issue of technology, which um, the Nicholas Moore report recently said that technology was a, and data was a huge problem at ASIC, or whether it is um, uh, the the quality of the staff, the, the leadership. I, I mean, the thing is that so so the heart of the problem. The, 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 you know, the, so, so I've asked for an inquiry, I'm going to be asking formally for an inquiry through the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Corporations and Financial Services. The committee needs to be, be, be needs to pinpoint specifically what are, what are the choke points in ASIC um, and basically, you know, tell the minister, tell the chairman of, of, of ASIC, these are the areas that we want to see dramatic improvement in a very short space of time. Otherwise, heads will roll. So, yeah. uh, but 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 again, I mean, you know, uh, perhaps perhaps. Well, he, he, here's the thing, Robbie. Uh, I mean, I mean, the Citizens Party can 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 make an allegation that some of this is intentional. But kind of like what I've gone through is until you have the the evidence, until you have the smoking gun, where you see a communication where they admit that it's intentional, we really can't say that it is intentional. But 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 what we can say is that um, as taxpayers we expect more we want more uh, but also in my some of my discussions with people in parliament the parliament wants more so so obviously i think there's a huge opportunity here to improve the system and to really get to the heart of white collar crime in this country um, and uh, and so yeah so uh, we're in the process of finalizing my report and uh, i'll be uh, submitting it to the committee uh, and again this is no 
you know, I, I haven't been commissioned to do this. This is just another John Adams crazy initiative that I'm putting together. And I could be completely ignored, but I think that I think we've got some solid ground here for Parliament to reflect on uh, the things that I'm saying. We, and we want to make sure you're not ignored because I've read the Adams, what, what should go down in history as the Adams report on uh, ASIC. So, uh, John, where things stand now, what can uh, we and viewers do to help? Sure, sure. Well, I mean, the th th thing is, is that uh, so, so the two committees that potentially could hold an inquiry is the, uh, like I said, the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Corporation and Financial Services, but also in terms of the Senate Economics, uh, Senate Economics References Committee. So um, if people are interested in issues related to ASIC, uh, I mean, they should definitely be communicating with those committee members um, and, and telling them their stories so that they actually understand that yep. Uh, that these issues continue to be um, a, a point of concern. But uh, when, my, uh, Robbie, we're, in probably the next week, week and a half, once we conclude the report and I put out a press release and we submit the report officially to, to the parliamentarians, um, yeah, look, I mean, I mean, at that point, it'd be obviously worthwhile to uh, get uh, people to obviously communicate their uh, enthusiasm for an inquiry and that um, the public at large, uh, you know, we all want a system where we can go to the regulator, make a, a proper complaint, and that complaint is is properly considered and adjudicated, and and where warranted a investigation happens, and it shouldn't be as hard as pulling hen's teeth. And until you do, ASIC won't be a tough cop on the beat. And my argument is that um, uh, you will have a white collar crime in Australia if white-collar criminals are not afraid of the cop. And if the cop's, not, if the cop's not investigating, they're not going to be afraid. So, so we have to change that. And there's a, there's a big mess here to clean up. Um, John, thank you very much. I admire the work you've done on this um, project and not just on your project, but looking at the broader public policy issues here. Um, when you do finalise your report, we'll help um, publicise it and get people to make calls to the politicians to the, to the committee members to get that inquiry up. Um, I'll, I'll end with this anecdote, which you're aware of. When you, when you shared the first draft of your report, um, I helped you find certain people to share it with who I knew had experience with ASIC, bad experience with ASIC. And one of them very understandably said, um, great report, but what's another inquiry gonna do? There's been all these inquiries. My answer to that, and I want people to take this seriously, is the 2018, Royal Commission should be a sea change in this whole picture. Yes, there was lots of inquiries before that, but we had a Royal Commission into, into banking misconduct, which did go after the regulators as well. Since then, however, we've had a strange period. <laughs> we had, we had um, an initial period where the government, Frydenberg and Morrison said, oh yeah, we're gonna implement the recommendations, etc." But then COVID came along, the subject completely changed, um, under the cover of COVID, a lot of things was, were, were done to, to go back to what it was. it was. It's as if the Royal Commission never happened. And we as Australians can't tolerate that. That was a, as weak as that Royal Commission was, it still showed the public, if there was any doubt, how corrupt, how much corruption it was in the financial services industry, right? So we've now got a new government. We've had that Royal Commission. These new inquiries that we get up now are in the post-Royal Commission era, and they must, there's, there's potential for them to lead to real change. It's us getting that, that political impulse from the Royal Commission back on track. 
right? And that's why I've really supported what um, you've done, John, in this regard, and the Citizens Party fully supports it and will get behind it. So anyway, um, any, last, any last comments before we sign off? Um, well, well, no, the thing is, is that like a, I'm pretty sure we, we, that you and I have, have, have been able to cover everything, but, uh, but, but, but again, um, one, one of the core um, uh, issues so, so, so when I started interacting with the Citizens Party uh, very intimately, one of, one of the issues that is front and centre for your agenda, political agenda, is the financial system. Um, um, and, and, there's, and, and we've been working very productively on, on all sorts of things related to economics, uh, finance, banking, uh, and now regulation. And so I hope uh, we're able to have another successful outcome in terms of getting Parliament interested in actually trying to fix the problem. Um, um, and, uh, and and hopefully we, we uh, generate a, a, a more productive and beneficial Australia for everyone. Hear, hear. Can't agree more. Well, thanks very much for joining us on Citizens Insight, John. And thanks to the viewer for tuning in. We'll put links below to relevant things and stay in um, touch with the subject. Look out for our announcements, look out for John's press release. And when we say hit the phone, call for an inquiry, please make sure you do that. But John, thanks again. Thanks, mate.